Hi, and welcome to In Conversation, an interview series exploring creativity, diaspora, and transformation. I am Reshma Razvi, a producer and media maker inspired by the character of Shahrazad in 1001 Nights and her storytelling resistance. So I started the Shahrazad Squad. Join me as I talk to some of these Sherazads with a small s, the women and non-binary creatives, cultural producers, and change agents, each engaged in transformational work. After all, stories plus sisterhood save the kingdom. The squad had its origins in theater, with a company called Cal Shakes, so performance and drama have always been near and dear to our heart. Today, you'll be hearing from the multi-talented dancer, actor, and singer, Sheetal Gandhi, who you'll hear introduce herself and her creative practice in just a minute. During our conversation, Sheetal reflected on a project called the Sita Yana, a retelling of the Ramayana from Rama's wife Sita's point of view. As Sheetal puts it, the Sita Yana is a story that connects to, quote, the real human heart of Sita and moves away from the story of the ideal woman towards a more nuanced and relatable portrayal. We also talked about regular human marriage. Let's take a listen. I'm a great imitator. Since I was a little kid, like through my life, I just always imitated my parents or I would go to India and I would imitate the guy coming around selling giant coffee or the tailor who would always burp every five seconds. I've always been really fascinated with characters and their idiosyncrasies. They're all in me. And then something just comes out. I'm Sheetal Gandhi, and I'm a dance theater artist, uh, an actor, dancer, singer. I'm also an educator. I'm very committed to healing. I have a Pilates practice. Like a lot of artists, I wear a lot of hats. And this production is called the Sitayana, or How to Make an Exit. And then the, the other one is called Amarchitra Sita, which is like Amarchitra Kata. It's written by Lavina Jadwani. I am 16 years old and I have never been kissed. I'm 16 years old and I am a princess. <laughs> I'm 16 years old and my dad is insane. My father, Janak, King Janaka to you has rounded up the most eligible bachelors in all of Mithila to see who is worthy of my hand in marriage. And how, might you ask, is he going to judge this? Well, this is Shiva's bow. You know, the Shiva, the guy with the third eye of destruction whose wife has to remind him to keep it shut or else he'll annihilate everything in sight. And Sita and Rome are such popular deities and figures in Indian culture, Hindu religion. Can you say a little about how one in the Indian diaspora is connected to these stories? Yeah, well, I think everybody gets probably connected in different ways. A friend of mine was telling me that she heard these stories from her grandfather. Her grandfather used to tell her these stories. And for me, it was all through Amarchitra Katha. I mean, I grew up reading these comic books, and that's how I learned about the Ramayana and all the mythology. We would go to India for three or four months at a time, and 
Sometimes there was nothing for me to do and I would just read these comic books. So I knew the stories and, you know, you're reading them through a comic book lens. So it's very action oriented. What I loved too in your performance was this sort of that it allowed also for the spectrum of your kind of Indian diasporic identity to really come into play. And so there's a sort of teenage American self early on, right? And then the voices that come in feel like you're kind of channeling these sort of, you know, grandmothers or folks from India a little bit. I think what Lavina did with the writing was really smart in that there are these moments for me where I can go into the more traditional interpretations of King Dashrath or Queen Koshalya or even Hanuman, but that Sita herself is written to be able to be more relatable to 21st century you know, women and people in general, the language she uses um, is much more modern day. And I think that juxtaposition was really fun to play with. Um, and even in that, you know, I saw so, so much variety in how we interpreted that modern day Sita between the three Sitas. With my concept, they were very interested in the way that I can embody all these different characters and the physicality that I bring to it as a dancer. And in some ways, they wanted mine to be the most traditional one-woman show in that they could just pick that show up and plop it on stage, and it would be completely intact. Mine was called Sita's Mendy Party. In mine, I guess the big challenge is just like I flip back and forth between these different characters. There's so much unknown with COVID about where, what kind of space we could get, what the rules were going to be. It was a challenge that you'd met so fully and completely. And like big shout out to all of the people involved, all the theater companies coming together and all yeah. of the guys coming together in COVID with this piece. I think it's just a really great example of collaborative kind of media making and art making it feels like everyone was elevating each other and kind of really supporting each other clearly so yeah and it was crazy to do this you know with everything just over zoom i mean it's the first time we most of us were rehearsing on zoom in our own homes without any idea of what the space where we were going to be filming was going to be like we didn't have any idea of the dimensions of the space we had never worked with the props Trying to figure that out with the director, Rena, that was a challenge because we as actors are asking her questions like, how much space do I have? So I look here for this camera, or here for this camera, and how heavy is this prop? Where do I put it down? How many steps can I walk before I turn into this character? And for me, as a mover, that's really important. I need to marry all of the movement to the words in order for everything to get in my body. And so it has that very sort of a live sense, very vulnerable. It was amazing how it came together. I didn't have a lot of time to go through and think of multiple ways one of my characters would be interpreted. So it's almost like the first thing that came out, I just went with it. So for example, Urimilad, you know, she was just kind of talking like this and I just went with it. And I just asked the director, I'm like, does this work? I don't know where this is coming from. But it's a strong enough contrast from Sita. And as an actor, that's what I had to do is try to find these characters that sounded different enough from Sita so that when I'm going back and forth, you follow the story. 
she's often called the ideal woman or the ideal sort of feminine, but that's often in her relationship, though, as a wife or as a mother or as a daughter. The archetype really that she represents is fertility or purity or, again, the feminine. The other side of that, of course, is suffering. You get the sense of injustice that's done to Sita, but you don't get much farther than that. It's sort of like, look at her. She's this goddess that experiences this injustice, and then she even rises above it, and it's all very idealized. And I think in mythology, there is that tendency to create these ideals. Being able to go back to this story that I grew up with and to connect to the real human heart of Sita or the imagined human heart of Sita, not the goddess, not the infallible, the one who is perfectly poised to rise above everything, but the one who who realizes as she's going through it, like, oh, oh, this is a disappointment, but okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? I mean, you can relate to that in your own life where things don't work out exactly as you hoped or planned, and we all come up with different reasons for that, and the idea of dharma, your duty, is, um, you know, people might call it destiny here, you know, in the West, but it's this idea that, okay, I don't get everything I want the way I want it. But maybe by maybe by doing this dharma and, and embracing my duty, I'll be able to connect to this uncomfortable compromise. And she tries, right? In in the story that we're telling uh, in Lavina's version, she does her best to do that. And you don't get all that from the from the comic book. You don't get all the internal dialogue. It's written to like prepare women, right? To say hey, you know, you're going to go live with your husband's family traditionally. Things aren't going to be as you imagined, but look what Sita did. You can do that too. You can adjust. You can compromise. And it's better for everyone. And look, Sita did all that. And still so many injustices happened. And that won't happen to you. So you can do this much. You know, it's like, it's this, it feels like another way to prepare young women for that rite of passage into being a married woman, because so much of her own identity can be lost in them. And people are talking about it so much more. But when I came to learn about it, I was 17 years old. That was a long time ago. And I was just shocked. I had no idea that this is what all my bobbies, you know, my cousins' wives or my gakis, my father's brother's wives, like I just, I romanticized it all. I thought everybody's so happy. This is such a beautiful life. It's so different than ours. And everyone has their place and they know their role. But then you start talking to women and you hear about how many of them are suffering. And it's not always because they're being abused or it's some like major thing. It's just because like they don't have a voice. They feel torn between, well, I have to make this work. Like Sita always says in this play, is, I can make this work. It's so relevant. Not to say that everybody in India is, this is how it goes down. Modern day India is just like here. People date, they make choices for themselves, they live apart from their family, but still the norm is that a woman will live with her husband's family. And 
be expected to make it work. And I think that your story arc as a woman really centers your marriage and getting married above and beyond everything else, right? Yeah. And I remember being younger and having other ideas for myself, <laughs> as I imagine you did too. And you've had a great, amazing career full of travel, full of a lot of incredible independence before you yourself came to your marriage. So I'm curious about what maybe your younger self's thoughts were about marriage, especially as it related to this cultural thing that you're talking about and you yourself wanted to do, and that how that maybe evolved and changed as you actually got married and found someone to spend your life with. I always wanted to get married. Like I said, I romanticized tradition, but I didn't think about getting married as this big compromise. I just thought I want to share this wonderful life I have with someone. I want to bring them into the fold. I want to introduce them to all my family in India. And I just had all these ideals of that. And I did. I wanted to get married. At the same time, I don't think I thought, well, to do that, I have to change anything about myself. Meaning like, oh, I I can't be an actor and I can't roam about the world and I can't. like. It didn't seem like the two were in conflict to me, whereas everybody would always interpret that my independent spirit, my adventurous spirit, the fact that I would go live in another country for a year, travel everywhere by myself or go gig to gig and move across the country. Like they interpreted that everybody as, oh, she doesn't want to get married. She's just enjoying her career. She's not, you know, and it's just funny because I always did. I was always looking for my soulmate, like around every corner and wondering, is this it? You know? And I think when I got when I got into my 30s, my family in India at that point, because you know, up, up till then, they kept asking, like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? And I just felt like I was always letting everybody down. And both my brothers were married and one of them had kids. And my other brother who's 12 years younger than me also got married. And by that point, I was like probably almost 40. And at that point, everyone in India stops asking you. It's it's a good age to get to. You get to like past 35 and then everybody stopped. (laughs) We're not going to ask anymore. He's over the hill, you know, and then you're kind of free. And then actually more women start telling you about their marriage. They're much less idealistic about it. And they're much more honest. It was just always really important, no matter how much I wanted that and knew that that was something that I wanted in my life. I also knew that it just had to be right. It had to fit. And I wasn't going to just get married if it wasn't right. And right for me was a lot of things like that it was a healthy relationship and that there was an ease to it. And there was a sense of interests that matched that this person could embrace all the, the family and the culture that I come from. But my parents were always very open minded. They didn't put any undue pressure on me. They didn't try to match me with people. My mom and dad both really knew me, and I made sure they knew me. I was one of those people that was like, this is me. I didn't try to pretend. And my mom at one point, she was like, you know, I just want you to be happy. If you find the right person, great, but I just want you to be happy. And she was never like, oh, it has to be someone South Asian or Indian or of this caste or anything like that. So yeah, I didn't have any of that kind of 
pressure on me. And once I did find the right person, actually all of those ideals did come true, bringing him to India before we got married. And he's the kind of person that can embrace all the differences that are in the world and all the different kind of people that are, are, that are in my world and they could embrace him. And I feel lucky. I had to wait a long time for this. I had to be patient, <laughs> just like Sita. Um, yeah, but it did happen, which is amazing, incredible. It's one of the biggest dreams of my life, no matter how much other stuff I've done, which has been really cool. So interesting to hear that you, that it was always a dream of yours and you weren't running from it and that everyone else interpreted that independence was the opposite of marriage. It's very, you're right. That's the language people use. Settle down. Settle down. When are yeah. you going to settle down? Yeah. I mean, and to give them credit, I did realize, oh yeah, you do actually have to make space for it. Otherwise, you're just going to hook up with whoever's in the show that you're currently doing and hope that works. I had to start making some different decisions, which it wasn't all about finding the, that person. It was also like, you know, I am kind of tired of just running from gig to gig. I started thinking I want to build something both in my career, in my community, which meant staying in the same place for a while. And I think that did create space for the right person. And now that the right person is in my life, again, I'm not going to be unrealistic and think, well, it can survive me bouncing around everywhere. Well, of course it can't. I mean, it's going to strain it. If I'm always gone, what kind of marriage is that? So I'm okay because I've already done all that bouncing around. I'm okay now prioritizing us and then letting the work come and be in balance with them. Because I know I'm, I can't be unrealistic and be like, everything has to happen all at the same time. Like it doesn't, it can't always happen all at the same time. I realized that once I was in my 40s, but yeah. Yeah, and, and then also you had room to make the beautiful home that you're in. Yeah, yeah. Um, continue to grow that community in LA that you're part of. Yeah. What's, what's on the horizon then for you after... After this role, I'm having a baby. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm busy creating and making a life. I'm still planning on being creative and working and continuing the Pilates practice. And I'm also looking for an agent almost for the first time. I've had agents here and there, but I've pretty much been a free agent. So now I'm actually interviewing with different agents and looking at because I'm going to be in LA, that kind of work, television or film or commercials. You know, we in this project with the Shahrazad squad, the archetypes and the feminine come up a lot. And also these sort of ancestral connections that we have with the wisdoms of the women that came before us and our cultures. Yeah. You're about to become a new mom. And I'm curious about the types of things, in particular, maybe some of the ancestral wisdom or lineage that you feel is coming through you to the next generation or what's important to you with that transmission? My mom factors pretty high there. And my mom has dementia and she's not in a position even where she can even retain or understand that I'm pregnant. Just, I don't even have the words, but it's hard. You want to stop this from happening. There's so much helplessness. And yet they're still alive. They're still there. And the one thing I learned when my dad passed away was that I kept him alive by embracing 
and practicing his values, which were my values, but it became a conscious thing. The helpfulness of my dad, the fact my dad would just reach out and and help people. He was just known for that. And I consciously do that. And that's my dad. And I'm keeping my dad alive. Another thing about my mom is just very strong. She led by example. The connections that she maintained were very connected to all of her relations. And that's something that has come through to me. I'm curious about what you're interested in seeing more of out there. What would kind of excite you to see what kind of stories would be you'd be interested in, whether you're part of them or not, but you think would really be juicy or interesting or really add to our landscape here in America? I love to see people breaking out of the preciousness of South Asia, because I think South Asian culture has a tendency to be overly exoticized and revered. I think it's important to incorporate just regular people doing regular things. There's this default where a white person can play these different things and all these different aspects and a South Asian person, there's an idea of what that is. I just want to keep pushing that boundary out. Thank you for listening. That was Sheetal Gandhi. You can learn more about her at SheetalGandhi.com. The link to our website and socials is all in the notes, along with more information on our interviewees. Shahrazad Squad is spelled S-H-A-H-R-A-Z-A-D-S-Q-U-A-D. And that's all one word at www.shahrazadsquad.org. I don't believe a family is just that little microcosm, but it is the extended family and friends maintaining that really strong social network. If you're interested in joining the squad, and if you identify as a Swanasa woman, non-binary, creative, cultural producer, or change agent, you can find information on our website. Again, shahrazadsquad.org. We are hosted virtually in Mighty Networks. Did I mention we have some wonderful conversation cards available for purchase? These artist design cards feature fun and meaningful prompts that connect small groups of people from families at dinner to a team meeting at the office. They're a great way to learn more about the people in your life and share stories. Each deck is $25 and fully goes to support squad activities and continue our project. You can find the link in the notes or again on our website. I produced the episode and it was edited and mixed by the wonderful Sonia Merman. That was beautiful, and I was actually, like, crying. The theme music is by squad member Naima Shalhoub. Squad is executive produced by Cal Shakes and funded in part by the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art. We thank our supporters, our funders, and you, our listeners. Thanks for your support, and thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. 